arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Chemistry can be difficult to pinpoint if you're not sure what you're looking for. Here's what you need to pay attention to if you want to determine if there's chemistry between two people. Number one, both people light up. This is instantly when they meet. They'll both just get this giddiness about them, even if they have no idea why. When the two people meet, the chemistry has already started. Pay close attention to what people do as they're introduced. Do they get red and blush? Then it's definitely a sign of attraction and chemistry. If it's awkward and less impactful, there isn't much between them. Number two, lots of smiling. Smiling is just something you'll do if you have chemistry with someone. It's your body's reaction when you're in a good situation. And since our bodies are hardwired to seek out a mate, the moment they see someone who can potentially be the one, it'll react accordingly. If you find yourself or a friend smiling for no reason, there's definitely mutual chemistry. Number three, closeness. When two people seem to gravitate toward one another, the chemistry is very clear. Both people won't even be trying to do it. It'll just happen to them, and they'll find themselves really close to the person they have chemistry with. This is because our bodies desire to be around those who are good for us. When your body feels like a single person with someone else, you'll start subconsciously moving toward them. Okay, I think we get the message about what's going on in the River of Fave once Caroline and Greg know each other back in 1968. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me slow this baby down. As Greg and Caroline hit it off, she begins to realize how the original chemistry in the future exists between them in the past. He even calls her a lineup. You don't have to be a literary genius to know who's going to mess up this relationship. Marco is consistently mean and sadistic. Ben's reaction is to go after Marco. All this while Greg is about to have his college dreams fulfilled with UCLA. And then things get tragic when Caroline speaks about the future. Everything changes. Here is episode three of The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton, Chapter 15. Caroline worried about Ben not being in the apartment when she returned. She removed a box of graham crackers from the side pantry and then poured herself a cold glass of milk. Once she settled on the couch, she checked her watch and munched on the graham crackers. She sipped the chilled milk, set down the glass, and, and pulled out Greg's yearbook from below the coffee table. Thoughts of Greg in the car made her smile, and she kicked off her shoes. She opened to Greg's high school picture and shook her head. For a second, she just stared into space until she felt again Greg's burgeoning enthusiasm. The man at the Harside restaurant, despite his sense of humor and wit, possessed a hidden frustration. But now, 17 years old and in the prime of his life, nothing could stop Greg Provost. Something outside broke her concentration. Ben had not returned from Muldoon's. She closed the yearbook. With a full glass of milk in her hand, she walked in her stocking feet as light flickered across the wall. Then she pulled back the thin curtains. She jumped back when she saw the long black car from the supermarket. Her eyes opened wider and she wondered if Marco had followed her. She knelt in front of the bay window and put her nose to the glass. Marco in his smooth leather jacket, stepped from the car and looked up toward her. Apparently, he never forgot any perceived injustice and bore grudges forever. Maybe he would not rest until he satisfied his feelings of vengeance. He stood only twenty feet below on the Canterbury Street sidewalk. 
As he moved onto the steps, he quickly lit a cigarette with his lighter. Her husband's killer now walked to the apartment house door. She scampered back on her knees and clenched her fists. All right, Caroline, stay calm, make the right moves. She leaped to her feet, raced around the corner, but she slipped on the braided rug. Scrambling like a crab on the beach, she grabbed the phone and and forced the rotary dial. The dial clicked slowly and back into position. Dialing 911 did not work in 1968. At any moment, Marco would bound up the stairs. One brass lock on the white panel door separated her from Marco St. Germain. Her eyes darted between the door lock and the window, but the receiver shook in her hands. Frantic, she dialed the operator, but when she heard nothing outside, she set down the phone. She tiptoed across the rug again and put her ear to the door. The stair boards creaked as shoes hit the wood louder with each step. Her heart pounded. She stepped back and stared helplessly at the door as the intruder reached the landing and rapped on the wood. Leave me alone! Caroline, it's Ben. I don't have my key. Ben, is that really you? His muffled voice came through the door. Who the hell would it be? She flipped the lock, yanked the door open, and peered down the stairs before pulling Ben into the apartment. Then she slammed the door and secured the lock. She shivered as he held her shoulders. Caroline, what's the matter? Marco, Ben, he was out there. Didn't you see him? What, what the? We don't need this crap. He glanced at the door and then went straight to the window. He pulled back the shears. I was dropped off out back but thought I'd better go up the front stairs so I wouldn't scare you. This moron is pushing the envelope. It was the same car that was at the supermarket. He stepped out of that black car and he went right for the front door. She took two steps toward the window but hedged about getting any closer. Okay, okay. Ben pushed back the curtains again and nodded. This little bastard wants to play games? Mickey knows people. He'll fix his ass. Well, just call the police, Ben. Listen, I talked with that cop, Dan Brewer, about all this down at Muldoon's. The sergeant? Ben nodded. Dan tells me that the cop is named St. Germain. He's the punk's uncle. He's the punk's uncle. Oh, dear God. She covered her mouth with both hands. He has carte blanche. Maybe, but like I say, Mickey is aware of all this. He knows people in Philly. I don't want any violence. Caroline, you have violence. This punk needs to be taught a lesson. He stood and crossed over to the phone. He'll stop. Caroline grasped the yearbook in her hands, but pushed her teeth together when she opened a Markov's picture on the high school steps. As she studied the black and white image of a photograph not yet taken, panic set in, and again she thought of Marco as an evil force. His penetrating eyes peered outward as he pinched his cigarette. Mickey, just call him. I don't give a damn what it costs. If we don't stop this now, he'll hurt somebody. Caroline stared at him as she traipsed across the rug. She folded her arms as Ben turned away. Mick, I'm not saying deep six St. Germain or anything like that. Just scare his butt away from us. He hung up the phone and he and Caroline stared at each other for a few seconds. Ben, you do what you have to do. Well, that's a change. I understand what you're saying. We need to scare him away. She wrapped her arms around him. I'm just so upset. Okay, we're going to settle down here. We can't let this guy get inside our heads. 
He put his arm around her back and guided her to the sofa. Then he went over to the television and twisted the dial. The black and white set slowly materialized from a center white pin dot. He retreated back to the sofa and took a deep breath. Okay, let's see what Uncle Walter has for October 22nd. Ben pointed at a train approaching a stop. Well, here comes the next president of the United States. They're in Ohio. Caroline leaned closer as the train slowed on the TV set. Look at that little girl in the dress holding up the sign, Ben. She dropped it, the ropes went down, and the train finally pulled in. And someone pushed the little girl, but she managed to pick up another sign a few seconds later. Bring us together. Well, Nixon didn't do that, did he? He put his hand on her shoulder. Caroline, I made another bet. A big one. On what? The election. Nobody knows who's going to win. The damn thing is too close right now. How much money did you... I put it all on the guy from Whittier, California. We're going to be rich. I even put odds on the percentage. It's weird. Knowing what's going to happen before it happens, it's power. No doubt about it. Our main problem here now isn't money. It's St. Germain. The way this thing is going, he's the only thing standing between us and the accident. But we'll take care of him. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 14 Caroline watched the elevator clock as she floated between departments. The afternoon progressed, but she did not see Greg moving stock onto the floor. Maybe he had today off, or maybe he had forgot his fleeting request to meet her. She wanted to be with him, but at 17 years old, he had no conception why she had come back in time. Someone had named the restaurant Binghamton's Pride. She moved toward an outer perimeter of bright orange booths and white tables. The walls had large brown flowers painted on the walls, with the same store slogans stamped on the wall behind the register. She arrived at seven, and once in the booth, she stared at the dozens of shops and busy traffic along Main Street. Thoughts of Greg, victorious in the gym, lightened her mood, but the image of Marco in the classroom doorway polluted her happy thoughts. She lifted a chipped white coffee cup to her lips just as Greg, with a soda bottle in his hand, strolled into the restaurant and stood outside the booth. A smile flared across her face. I knew I'd find you, Caroline. Well, where have you been hiding? Do you really want to know? He slid into the booth as if he were getting into a hot car. Should I know? You won't believe this. You really won't. He said quickly, gesturing with his hands. You know where the freight elevator is? Not the main elevator, but the one around back next to the punch clock? Well, I think so. I went up and over to two and a half. She squinted. Oh, it's the next building over. It's attached to the main building, but not built the same. Staggered ceiling heights, and the elevator stops between the second and third floors. Binghamton uses it for their store fixtures and seasonal displays. And Caroline, he said, briefly touching her wrist. A rapid twinge twitted across her stomach. There's a whole room of mannequins up there. Oh, it's great because there's a wide staircase that leads down to the old offices. From the turn of the century, we've brought up chairs, lamps, tables near the outside wall. See, we poked a hole through the brick so you can see the whole shipping area in case a truck comes during the day. Oh, Greg, what if they paid you? Well, the wires to the store speaker system go through the room. We tapped into it. We can hear all the music, the pages. 
You never told me about all this, she said, referring to the future. Huh? None of the managers know about it? That's uncanny. Greg pushed his lips into a half-smile, proud of his achievement. She willingly listened to Greg's every word, and she tried to forget the winter and spring days she had hovered with his yearbook over his glossy black gravestone. I think this lounge is very ingenious. You won't say anything, will you? She shook her head and lifted the coffee to her lips. Oh, oh no. Good. So what brings you and your uncle to a little hick town like Reedsville? Caroline choked on the coffee and wiped her lips with a napkin. Are you all right? Oh, fine, fine. Is Mr. Fine here? No, I'm fine. With his face wrinkles erased and his hair full and dark, Caroline stared for a few minutes. To answer your question, well, I was mistaken about an opening at the school to teach math. Apparently, I had bad information. His face soured. You don't like math? Oh, it's not that I don't like it. I loathe it. No offense. None taken, so you loathe it. His eyes glistened and he smiled as he pointed at her. There's something about you. Me? Yes, you, he replied, not taking his eyes off her. How old are you, anyway? You dare ask a woman her age? He placed his elbows on the table and folded his hands. I say you must be at least 25, maybe 26. Well, for that compliment, I'll pay for your soda. In fact, I'll buy you lunch all week, Greg. I'm 32. Wow, I didn't know you were that old. Well, I mean, you don't look as old as... You're not as old as you look. I, I mean, no, oh, forget it. I don't care how old you are. I still like you. Oh, you do, do you? Yeah, I like your sense of humor, and I can talk to you without any complications. If you were younger, I might even ask you out. Be careful. I might accept. Hmm. Come on, Greg. You must have girls at your feet the way you play basketball. Yeah, but they're all boring, and I can't really talk to any of those girls at school. They want to just say they're going out with me. I'll tell you what. If you need help in math, I'll tutor you. That will be our date. How's that? Are you telling me that equations can be fun? She nodded and could sense his delight at her suggestion. I think there's only one thing I hate more than math, is art on the third floor of the high school. I just sit there staring at the skylights, he said, looking at his watch. Where have they got you stationed tonight? Cosmetics. He slid across the vinyl bench seat and stood. Cosmetics, where all the ladies walk in and expect you to make them over. And steal all the samples. I have to keep spraying them on my arm. He reached over and gently held her wrist upright as he smelled the perfume. Ah, an interesting combination, but quite pedestrian, quite. Quite, she said, laughing, intrigued by his touch. Pedestrian? Quite. Borrowed from Mr. Smith's English class this morning. Very funny, she said, grinning as he looked at his watch and then saw the time. My God, what's the matter? I've been sitting here for 20 minutes. If I don't get back to the pedestrian fragrances, I'll be fired. Quite. Quite. He grasped her hand and pulled her from the booth. Then he slapped down a few dollars on the side table. Greg, you don't have to pay. When I invite, I pay. That's my Greg. Huh? I mean, that's good. That's good. Thank you. They walked together from the restaurant and back to the cosmetics department. He talked with her about his upcoming game over the weekend, and then he saluted before he left. Caroline smiled and tracked his striped shirt and jeans across the large store. He disappeared into the stockroom.
The idea of souls linked through space and time kept flowing into her thoughts. All the employees exited at the parking lot entrance located at the shoe department. Caroline carried her coat and pocketbook and climbed a few stairs leading into the shoe department. The area had a not-so-unpleasant leather and vinyl odor. Mr. Fine, still impeccably dressed with a bright red tie, pointed at her as she approached. Well, Caroline, I'm getting good reports from you all over the store. You keep up the good work. Oh, sure, thank you, thank you. He opened the aluminum frame glass door. As the cold air gusted, Greg grabbed the door. You're not walking, are you, Caroline? No, I'm waiting for the limo. This is going to be my limo, a 1965 Chevy Supersport fastback with mag wheels and a four-speed on the floor. Well, I never turned down lunch or rides. They hurried across the parking lot to the red sports car glistening under the light pole. He opened the passenger door. What do you think? Nice car, Greg. Showroom finish. She fell into the black bucket seat. The air refreshener gave the car a sweet cherry smell. Greg got in and pushed down on the clutch and started the smooth-running engine. She reached for the seatbelt, but then realized this car did not have a seatbelt. 283, not as powerful as a 327, but reliable. You put a lot of effort into this car, Greg. Well, you have to take pride. And I just like the car. Just like you like to play basketball. When you like something, it doesn't become an effort. He backed up slowly, put on the radio, and flipped a switch for an odd echoing device called a reverberator. The Philadelphia radio station targeted teenagers, pitching local amusement parks, acne medicine, and soft drinks. The songs were simple, melodic, with a hint of protest. It isn't like when Dick Clark had American Bandstand in Philadelphia. Now everything's different. When the disc jockey announced he'd be playing a new Beatles song, Hey Jude, he became excited as he navigated down Main Street. I love that song. Well, you always did, she said. The song just keeps on going, on and on, just like them. Who, the Beatles? Yeah. The music cracked like a barroom sing-along through the speakers. Caroline leaned back as Greg turned up the bass. He sang with the chorus and she shook her head skyward. Hardly believing, she drove through the Reedville streets with a 17-year-old version of Greg on a fall night in 1968. She studied his narrow frame and cropped hair and slowly identified with his new image. Caught up with Greg and the song, she cruised with him through the town but cautioned herself they were just friends. She also found herself singing the chorus until the song actually ended some time later. Disappointed, Greg fiddled with the radio dial. Trying to find it again? Yeah, sometimes you get lucky, he said, unable to find the song. Then he looked over to her as he pulled up to the Canterbury Street apartment. You sang that song like you were my age. Are you sure you're 32? Well, I'm beginning to wonder. That song was a good one and probably the best before they split. Split? The Beatles split? I suppose it'll happen someday, but then I'll just listen to John. He shifted into neutral and let the car idle. I always liked the Rubber Soul album. Oh, I like the White album. What's that, an underground cut? Caroline, not sure whether the work had yet been released, cleared her throat. Well, well, uh, I guess it's time for me to go. White album? You seem to have this knowledge. I can't really put my finger on it. Like you know things nobody else knows. Tell me, Caroline Thatcher, who's going to win the election? She put her fingers on the door handle. 
Oh, it's hard to say, Greg. He leaned toward her. She had the urge to hug him. You must have some idea. Nixon wins, but he never makes it through the second term and has to resign. Greg tilted his head back and laughed. That's a good one. A president of the United States resign? Your sense of humor is as wacky as mine. She nodded and took out a small piece of paper and wrote down her phone number. Here, call me if you want some tutoring. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 13 She held Ben's arm all the way up the high school hill sidewalk. The hint of smoke from numerous chimneys along the side roads signaled that colder weather had descended upon the town and the valley. Ben kept grabbing his neck. Ben, are you sure you're all right? They should have brought you to the doctor when you fell off that bar stool. No, Caroline, just a few aches and pains. I'm okay. As they crossed under the parking lot lights, she wondered if Ben had told her the truth. She followed him into the warmer gymnasium lobby. When Ben bought the tickets, she studied the smudged glass trophy case. She spotted Greg in three team pictures. A brass-plated plaque leaned against the championship trophy. Greg Provost, 65 points, PRHS versus Harrisburg, March 20, 1967. Ben placed his hand on her shoulder as she looked up quickly. He held two green tickets in his right hand. 75 cents, Caroline, what a bargain. She touched her index finger to the scrape on his brow, and he flinched. Well, you hit that floor hard, Ben. Ah! Inside the noisy gym, Greg, in his red and black jersey and shorts, stood with his teammates mid-court in front of the team bench. He smiled when he saw her enter with Ben along the sidelines. The animated coach, Miss Skinnis, upper light shining on his bald head, ranted passionately to his players as cheerleaders waved their red and black pom-poms. Caroline escorted Ben into the crowded bleachers. Ben moved slowly, and she helped him sit against the cinder block wall. Something else happened to you, Ben. Nah, nothing else happened, Caroline. Right. Ben panned the bleachers. This place is packed. You'd tell me if Marco attacked you, right? Sure, sure. Well, Reedsville does love basketball. This place is packed. I'll have you know I'm giving up Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies for this game. Well, what a sacrifice, she laughed. She fixated on Greg. Ben, Greg likes me. Even at this age, I can tell. Whether he does or he doesn't isn't important, Caroline, said Ben as the crowd cheering intensified. Look, all we have to do is prevent that accident, and that's it. She spoke over the crowd noise. It's tough, Ben. I was married or will be married to him. It hurts. Ben stroked his chin and stared downward. I know. I truly know. After the tap-off, Greg's exhibition made the practice sessions look tame. Caroline screamed with the crowd and applauded when the kid at the microphone called out Greg's name after every basket. As if he had been turned up a notch, Greg ran faster and made quicker passes and moves and shot the ball through the hoop from every conceivable angle. As he worked the court, she understood his potential as she never had in Chicago. Greg even impressed Ben as he watched the fast-paced game closely. Ben repeatedly shook his head and did not utter a word until the opposing team called a timeout. A confused expression spread across his aging face. I thought he was your, you know, better-than-average high school player. 
He'd talk about playing ball, you know, after you'd had a few drinks, but this kid, he's an exceptional talent. Do you realize what kind of a career this kid could have had? Yes, Ben, I do. She leaned forward as the game started again and the players ran down the glossy wood court. Greg's leg muscles tightened as he leaped and his biceps were muscular and lean as he shot basket after basket in an effortless romp. His quickness overshadowed the other players. He could fake and weave, and he never tired. He scored 28 points, even though missing part of the second quarter. As the halftime buzzer sounded, both teams swarmed toward the locker room, and Ben banged his fist on the bleacher. We have to stop that accident, goddammit. Caroline, taken aback by his sudden emotion, hit his arm. Well, yeah. No, I'm serious. We've got to plan this thing out. Which leads me to an appropriate subject. We need transportation. I've got the boys down at Muldoon's working on getting a car for us. With all that cash I won. Ben, we don't even have licenses. They'll have licenses for both of us. Ben, they're already looking into the gambling, and you got me a social security card, and now we have to pull out all the stops. She stood and moved with the crowd down the bleachers. Ben, one screw up, and Greg will repeat history in December. He stood near the outer bounds line. Without taking chances, you can never go forward, and all you do is end up with nothing. They left the bleachers for a short time, and Ben bought Cokes back in the lobby. Caroline had the strangest feeling that someone watched her from a hidden location. She sipped the drink and constantly checked around the lobby and the gym for Marco. Again, she pressed her hand against the glass and stared at Greg's name on the trophies. I say he gets 50 points this game, said Ben, finishing a cigarette. Woo-wee, she exclaimed and raised her arm upward as she turned from the case. Wooey is right. I think the best thing we can do is have him miss that game on December 20th. She finished the coke and Ben brought it over to the trash can. Then his life will be different. You know, some people say that one event, one event can change a man's life. I met Amy one afternoon in 1947 purely by chance. Really? Yeah, I was actually looking for a job and I walked into this liquor store in Woodbridge. So Aunt Amy was buying booze? Oh, Jingleheimer Smith, no. I was going to that store and I bought a paper. She was walking down to her job at the drugstore down the street. I smiled at her. Right place, right time? Well, you never told me that, Ben. I miss her, Caroline. His brown eyes moisten. I just want to go to Detroit and see her one more time. You will, Ben. You will. She nodded and they entered the gym. Greg shot baskets with his team down the far end. Ben, are you telling me the truth? About what? Stop with the innocent routine. I want to know if Marco St. Germain attacked you. If I'm brought down by that punk, you'll know it. She stared at him as they moved along the bleachers. Ben's insistence on precariously ascending the bleachers left her doubting his story about falling off the bar stool. By the beginning of the fourth quarter, with Revere up by 20 points, people left early. The spread might have been greater if Miss Guinness had not rested Greg, who led all scorers with 43 points. But the lead fritted away during the last quarter, shrinking to just nine points at the four-minute mark. Thoroughly rested, Greg returned to the game, buzzing shots into the hoop, and Revere won the contest by 21 points.
She moved with the fans and followed Ben onto the court. Once on the court, she meandered through the crowd toward Greg. Good game, Greg, she called out, but he did not hear her. She raised her voice and cupped her hands. Hey, Greg, good game. Greg, followed by a few cheerleaders, smiled when he saw her. Caroline, what did you think? Well, I was a little bored. It was a slow game. What? He asked with a shocked look, and then he grinned, pretending to hit her arm. Always the kidder, she turned to Ben. You must be Ben. Well, it's good to see you again, Greg. Again? We've never met, said Greg, laughing. See, he even has your sense of humor, Caroline. The crowd took him physically across the floor and toward the locker room. As they slowly separated, he called back to her. You working tomorrow night? Of course. At Binghamton's, you're important to us, she said as she repeated the store slogan. Before he entered the locker room, he called out. Meet me on Thursday night break. 7.30. She nodded and he disappeared inside. Ben's arms were folded across his chest. Unreal. He likes you. Maybe you're right. Maybe some things just transcend time. They squeezed through the crowd toward the gym, but she stopped him and held his arm. I'm just so happy, Ben. Well, I'm happy for you. As they headed into the crowded lobby, she smiled as Ben's words echoed in her mind. How could she be in love with her 17-year-old husband? In the lobby, she casually glanced down the detention room corridor. A hundred feet away, Marco St. Germain leaned against the door casing and sneered, Jesus God. Marco stared constantly at her and pretended to throw her a kiss before ducking into a side classroom. What is it, Caroline? Marco! Marco, he was right over there, she said, pointing toward the classroom. Step over there to the ticket booth. I'll be right back. Stay right there. Ben pushed his way through the crowd and then hobbled down the dimly lit corridor. She worried about him taking on Marco as she backed up to the booth and stood with two teachers. Ben emerged down the corridor beyond the wire mesh doors a few minutes later. She met him in the hallway. No sign of him. He put his hands on his hips as he ran his teeth over his upper lip and scanned the half-lit corridor to his right. Her face tightened. He's out to get me, Ben. Nah, he's just a punk. I've seen a million of them in my lifetime. Show him a little intimidation and he'll back off. She shook her head. No, Hutch knocked him down. There's something wrong with this guy. Why did I have to step in front of that detention room? Don't blame yourself, said Ben, leaning back toward the dissipating crowd. It's as if you were destined to do evil, no matter, no matter when. It's just evil. Ben put his arm around her. You have your break with Greg tomorrow night. Talk to him. Forget about St. Germain. Her skin chilled as they moved into the colder air. She passed the parking lot and mentioned calling a cab, but Ben led her across the lot. As they headed toward the high school hill road, he insisted they should not be bullied. She assumed Marco would have left her alone after Hutch belted him at the market, but the incident may have only infuriated Marco further and hardened his resolve. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 17 Cars were haphazardly parked along the high school hill up to the gymnasium. Caroline neared St. Jerome's green and white bus parked next to the chain-link fence. 
huge old cars and a few trucks jammed the rest of the parking lot. At the main entrance near the quadrangle, a frizzy blonde-haired man, cameras dangling around his neck, lingered under the bare trees. Less than 15 feet away, smoking a cigarette and wearing his leather jacket, Marco St. Germain, at this very moment in time, prepared to pose for his yearbook picture. Holding the cigarette, Marco became aware of the camera and put his foot up on the steps, staring into the parking lot. He still had the band-aid over his right eye, but the nose bandage had vanished. As if on cue, the photographer moved to his left. Marco slowly lowered the cigarette and the guy snapped the picture at the proper moment in time. The photographer walked away. Marco finished his cigarette, stomped it out on the granite, and headed around the corner toward the gym. Caroline waited across the street until Marco had left. Then she jogged across the road and up to the quadrangle to the school's front entrance. As she climbed the steps, she noticed Marco's cigarette butt still smoldering on the quadrangle. Mesmerized by the smoke and terrorized about seeing Marco, she backed up the stairs toward the green doors. She rushed through the rotunda, past the principal's office, and into the gym corridor. His evil eyes and his perpetual grin loomed in her thoughts as she hurried by the repainted green lockers down toward the gym. The cheering and pounding escalated as she reached the lobby. She methodically checked the lobby and the outside that Ben had not yet arrived. Through the open doors, St. Jerome's warmed up by the basket. At the far end, Greg repeatedly popped the ball through the net. As she turned toward the outside doors, Marco St. Germain leaned against the wall tile near the Coke machine. He crossed his arms and fixed an arrogant smile upon his face. She broke into a run down the corridor, but she could hear his footsteps behind her. Over her shoulder, Marco closed in. Then he grabbed her shoulders and slammed her against the lockers. Your buddy, the old man, said Marco, leaning toward her. He made a few untimely phone calls last month, lovely lady. Caroline turned her head. Get away from me! He pointed at his swollen brow and then ripped off the band-aid. A wide, scabbed gash covered his dark eyebrow. This is what the old man had done to me. You think I'm going to forget it? Shut up! The crowd inside the gym drowned out her voice. He raised his index finger and then jabbed at her. You get this straight, lovely lady, and you let the old man get this straight. The thugs don't scare me, and neither does the old man and his drinking buddies. You shouldn't be fooling around with an old geezer anyway. He's liable to croak right on top of you. I'm going to get inside your pants, lovely lady. You can tell that to the old man, and you can tell the thugs that. She had to slap his face, but he clenched her wrist, twisting her skin as he squeezed tightly. You're hurting me! Let that be a lesson to you. He released his grip, smirking as he moved closer and stared into her eyes. His putrid breath made her gag. Then he released his grip and retreated back to the lobby. His metal heel taps clicked against the floor tiles, and then he exited outside. She slid down the wall and sat on the cold floor. For several minutes, she cried into her hands. She pushed her way up the wall and staggered back to the lobby. The game had begun, but she breathed erratically as she put a quarter in the soda machine. 
She drank a cool ginger ale as Ben strolled through the lobby doors. He had a dumb smile on his face that descended quickly. Hey, what's wrong? Oh, Ben. She held him, and then he led her across the lobby to the side corridor. Caroline, what is it? Then he spotted her wrist, still reddened from Marco's grip. What the hell is going on here? Marco, he, he grabbed me. Ben held her shoulders. Where is he now? Gone. He surveyed the lobby. Enough is enough. You're right. This has gone far enough. That creep threatened to rape me. Ben's eyes were stuck open and his voice quivered as she shook. We're going to the police and then to the district attorney. Marco would extract revenge and she knew it. No, no, not now. I'm going inside and I'm going to watch Greg play. Caroline, come on. No, I want to go inside. All right, but I'm going to fix his ass. I can get rid of this creep once and for all. Then they'll arrest you. No, Ben. There's something like the gypsy said, a force of evil. You can't fight an evil force, Ben. Then I'll kill him myself. The game has already started. Just Let's just think this over. What's to think over, Caroline? Ben lit a cigarette and paced in front of her. At least let me call Mickey. You sent heavies from Philadelphia after him, and it had no effect. I'll have Mickey call the state police. They just created six area commands in January. Mickey knows all the troopers and all six. Ben puffed on the cigarette and veered toward the payphone next to the display case. Caroline said nothing as she trailed behind him. Ben flipped a dime in the slot and used the rotary dial. Whatever you do, Ben, it had better work or he'll kill us both. Ben pulled the receiver closer to his ear. Al, this is Ben. No, I, I don't care about the Eagles. I need to talk with Mickey right away. He threw the cigarette onto the floor and snuffed it out. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Let's think this through. Marco has a vulnerability, Ben. The law. If we can get by his uncle. Mick, it's St. Germain. He's at it again. No. No attack, but he threatened to rape Caroline. Right. Not yet. First, we try to stay police, like you said. Bring him to the barracks. Okay, right. He'll be scared for sure. I will. I will, Mickey. Thanks. Oh, what can he do, Ben? Asked Caroline as Ben checked the coin return. Oh, he can do a lot. First step, he's calling Harrisburg. Mr. St. Germain is going to be taking a little trip down to the state police barracks. Ben, the old lady's Latin words. I found the meaning at the library. I will either find a way or make one. I'd say we just made one. Ben gave the tickets to the girl at the gym door. The crowd noise took over when Ben escorted Caroline to the Revere side on the right. Greg had just sunk a basket no more than 20 feet away and the crowd roared in approval. One of the guys in a black blazer sat between them in two chairs next to the bleachers. Caroline squinted at the scoreboard. Revere had a six-point lead. As Revere marched down the court, Greg executed a layup and his head arched precariously close to the backboard. Caroline flinched. The players raced at an extraordinary pace. Caroline's thoughts focused on Marco in the corridor. Why do I get the feeling that nothing scares him? Ben's silence lasted for a few seconds. Well, that's what he wants you to think. The cheerleaders in their white and red sweaters chanted to the crowd when Miss Guinness called a timeout. 
On the opposing side, two men in blue sport coats sat on a bottom row of bleachers. Caroline nudged Ben. That has to be the guys from UCLA. Blue and gold are the Bruins' colors. Again, the corridor encounter with Marco popped into her head. Can't think of anyone I've ever met, Ben, who radiates such fear. What? Oh, you mean that dipshit St. Germain. She nodded. He's just a street tough. I know his type. Just a sophisticated bully is all he is. There are two choices here, Caroline. He gets threatened with jail time or he gets hit. Despite the competition, Greg did well, but kept driving too close to the boards. Ben thought tonight he played with too much emotion, missed opportunities, and allowed good plays by the opposition. He needed to methodically play his own game, but his intensity pushed his point total upward. Midway in the third quarter during a timeout, he looked up at Caroline, indicating his points with his fingers. Caroline held up her thumbs, but Ben shook his head. That's what I mean. He needs to forget about how many points he has and just help the team win. Caroline smiled. Well, everybody's a critic. He likes you. I can see that. In fact, he's probably in love with you. Well, we've become closer since I started the math tutoring. The old tutor and the student play. Okay, said Ben, laughing. Oh, come on, Ben. I'm serious. He called me at work today. He said he has a present for me. Caroline, keep your eye on the ball. We need to focus on preventing Greg's accident. You sound like you're back in high school yourself. She grinned and shook his arm, but her smile fell quickly as Marco walked ahead of several of his friends into the gym. Ben, well, look what the rat dragged in. Himself. Of course, it's the third quarter. He doesn't have to pay. Then he goes and stands on the opposing side. This kid is so transparent. I just hope he doesn't see us, Ben. You know, if we stop that accident... When we stop the accident, said Caroline. When we stop the accident, Greg won't hang around with him, and maybe St. Germain won't kill that hitchhiker. But I'll bet my bottom dollar the little bastard gets nailed for something else. Caroline nodded and attempted to watch the game without being affected by Marco's distractions. Yet the beady-eyed Marco repeatedly stared in her direction. In an odd way, the choices for the rest of Greg's life were represented by Marco and the UCLA men just a few feet away. She held on to Ben and followed Greg up the court. By the fourth quarter, as she gazed at the time clock, Greg had 35 points, and Revere managed to hold a slight lead. Then Greg hit a quick jumper from the top of the key. That makes 40 points, Ben. Well, how can I argue with that? And against St. Jerry's, wow! Revere, led by Greg, built up a 12-point lead. With two minutes left, Miskinis brought Greg 46 points on the scoreboard out of the game. He had dominated the contest, and the crowd gave him a standing ovation. Everyone cheered except Marco and his cronies, who ceremoniously marched from the gym. Look at that creep, said Caroline, watching Marco disappear into the lobby. Excuse me, asked Ben. You know who I'm talking about. She shook her head as the applause got louder. Greg stepped onto the court and waved to the crowd. Even the two men in the blazes applauded. Caroline clapped again, smiling, as the ovation continued. She saw Greg in a perspective Ben could not fully appreciate. The gifted athlete returning to the bench bore only a slight resemblance to her middle-aged husband back at the hearth side. I'm just very proud of him, Ben. Very proud. Caroline stood with Ben near the lobby display case, but the ubiquitous Marco had her on edge. 
She continuously panned the lobby and the corridor. Maybe he had left the school grounds in that long black sedan. Twenty minutes after the final buzzer, Greg, his hair combed back neatly, pushed open the locker room door. He wore a spiffy green turtleneck, suede jacket, and cocky pants. People rushed up to congratulate him as he crossed the lobby, and with a small package in his hands, he headed directly toward Caroline. Caroline! Oh, good game, Greg. She glanced at the package as he hugged her briefly, and she felt a soft, warm kiss on her cheek. Ben shook his hand. Nice to see you, Greg. Great game. Caroline has told me so much about you. How are you doing, Ben? Well, I'm not bad for an old goat. You were good, Greg. I never realized you were this good. There she goes again, Ben, talking like she's known me for years. She studied the white package in his hands. Sometimes it seems that way. Say, Greg, can you bring Caroline back to the apartment? asked Ben. Sure, that's no problem. Greg winked at Caroline. I want to go down to Muldoon's and talk to Mickey about a few things. Caroline knew he meant he wanted to talk about Marco, but she said nothing. She looked into the outside parking lot and then down the corridor. Marco and his friends were gone. Will you keep up the good work? Greg nodded. You want to ride to Muldoon's? No, no, I need to keep these old bones moving. You sure, Ben? asked Caroline. Walking alone might not be smart. He held her hand briefly. Don't you worry about a thing, Caroline. Ben. He turned and before exiting the lobby doors, held up his thumb and then moved into the night. I like your uncle. He's a nice guy. They passed the trophy cases toward the corridor. He shouldn't be walking alone to Muldoon's. How did it go with the men from UCLA? They'll be back in December to meet again with my parents. Were your parents at this game? They were talking with Mr. Piazza. Then they left from the locker room door. I should have introduced you. Oh, that's fine. I can always meet them. Oh, gee, I almost forgot, said Greg, holding up the thin white package. Here, this is for you, Caroline. It seems as though we keep hearing this over and over. Caroline held up the package and pretended to shake it. Greg seemed quite pleased with himself as she slowly unwrapped the white paper and a blue envelope fell to the floor. He quickly retrieved it and handed it to her. She opened the envelope. Greg had handwritten the lines from Hey Jude. The corresponding 45 record lay within white wrapping paper. Her throat tightened. Their life together had not ended in Chicago. Do you like it? Greg, you, you have no idea what this means to me. Why, well, I, I hope I haven't overstepped my bounds here. She slowly shook her head and wiped away a single tear trickling down her face. He placed his hand gently on her cheeks and kissed her. Not a long kiss, but intense enough for her to remember how it had once been. I like you a lot, Caroline. I'm only a kid, I know, but... Greg, it's all right. I do like you. She held his hands. God, I wondered whether you'd like me or were just putting up with the tutoring. The rides home or the breaks at the store... Don't underestimate yourself. He kissed her longer this time and put his arm around her as they headed back to the gym lobby. A few of the classmates stared and she worried how that might affect him. Greg, your friends, I, I don't want them to start talking. I know I'm older than you are. Well, forget them. Caroline saw their stunned faces and heard the petty talk as Greg opened the lobby door. The colder air hit her face. She pushed up Greg's turtleneck as they walked into the school parking lot to his red supersport. I guess my uncle was right. About what? 
Space and time can't stop what he calls fate. He lifted her into his arms. Ben knows what he's talking about. I love you, Lina. Call it fate. Call it whatever you want. I love you. Then he kissed her again. They embraced deeply, his lips warm in the air, and she felt secure in his arms, secure enough to forget about the cold air, to forget about Marco St. Germain, and to forget about Chicago. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 18 Ben walked along the dimly lit school building toward the quadrangle. Cars exited onto the school street hill to his left, and the sound of his shoes hitting the concrete echoed off the yellow brick walls. A music room and a chemistry lab were barely visible inside the long pane windows. Movement in the glass reflection and rustling in the bushes signaled trouble. Marco St. Germain emerged from the shadows, ahead of three other guys. He gripped a green beer bottle and a cigarette hung from the corner of his mouth. Hey, old man, you trying to get in our way? He threw the cigarette into the fallen leaves. Then he pushed Ben several times with the blunt end of his hands. Ben started forward. Let me by, punk. Marco blocked the sidewalk and the others formed a semicircle around Ben. Oh, he thinks we're punks, Donnie. He thinks we're punks. You're already in deep shit, St. Germain. Oh, naughty language, old man. Naughty, naughty, naughty. You shouldn't talk to these impressionable young men like that. His friends laughed. Let me by, St. Germain. Well, I have a first name. He said, nodding to his friends, You can call me Marco. They grabbed Ben under the arms and tightened their lock as he fought to get loose. Marco, once they were successful, restrained Ben. He advanced with a smirk and his fists were clenched. He slapped Ben's face several times and muttered something Ben could not hear. Oh, you're a tough guy with your friends having to hold me back. Marco cocked his fist and hit Ben across his cheekbone. Then he pummeled Ben's stomach and ribs. At first, each blow shook him, but then his body built up an odd numbness, pain, and fatigue. Where's the lovely lady, Ben? Then he landed a punch across Ben's eye. You're a punk! Not only could he taste blood, but his right eye swelled shut and he had trouble standing. You and her just living together? What, do you like the young stuff, do you, Benji? Is she any good? Shut up! This is for sending your goons after me. Marco hit him in the stomach. Your troubles are just beginning, old man. Why don't you go to hell? Marco kicked him in the groin and Ben buckled over. The pain stung and he lay limp on their arms. With a quick blow behind his neck, they dropped him to the cement. He could not move now as they poured beer over his head. Marco's voice preceded a strong kick to the ribcage. Stay out of my way, old man. They crossed the walkway and crushed the fallen quadrangle leaves. A car's powerful engine started and the tires screeched away as Ben went out. Caroline cruised with Greg and the Supersport under the bare tree branches and along the houses scattered downtown. The radio music provided a continual presence as the leaves drifted through the night and onto the windshield. Occasionally she glanced at the vinyl record and held his hand. Greg had a goofy smile as he drove. He downshifted and slowed near the corner variety store and then stopped at her apartment building.
Are you ever going back to Michigan? She raised her brow. Well, I kind of like it here in Reedsville. Well, that's great. He leaned over and she felt his strength as he hugged her. I like you. Well, I like you too, Greg. She gave him a fleeting kiss. I guess you do. I want you to come up to the apartment. You do? Greg, as nervous as a 17-year-old could be with an older woman, maneuvered the car next to the curb. Once outside, he helped her from the car and continued to hold her hand. Caroline opened the outside door and they raced up the front stairway. Upstairs, she unlocked the door and he followed her inside. Ben's cooked bacon smell from this morning hung in the air. As she twisted the heat dial, she spotted the red and black yearbook still months away from print, open on the coffee table. When Greg neared the table, she grabbed him and pretended to dance. He laughed and then they waltzed around the room. If I had a CD, a what? If I had a record player, a turntable, I'd put that record on. They danced nearing the yearbook several times. Well, you can use my turntable. Well, great. She backed across the rug and saw the book in the corner of her eye. As if she were executing an elaborate karate maneuver, she swung around and kicked the book under the sofa. Then she lost her balance and he caught her. What a move, Lina. You should come to one of my dances. Dance? Greg, the kids at the school would have a field day with that. I don't care what they say. I don't. If you really want me to go. Her long relationship with Greg had flowered into a new dimension when she threw her arms around his shoulders and kissed him fully. He passionately pulled her to his large frame and cupped his hands over her cheeks. When they broke the kiss, he smiled. Wait until my parents meet the math tutor. She grinned. Well, they can't complain about your grade. Tom likes good grades. Caroline remembered Tom in his later years, how he got sick and shuffled and bent over on the walker. Greg's mother would visit Tom in the nursing home. She too would grow old, succumb, and die. But in 1968, they were both alive and well. Penny, for your thoughts, said Greg. Oh, I'm sure your parents will accept our relationship. Greg pulled her closer. How about some more tutoring, Miss Thatcher? She kissed him again, but Greg, ready to carry it further, rubbed her shoulders. Getting physically involved might not be the best thing for the vulnerable 17-year-old Greg. She thought about the future and how she might disrupt the timeline. She stepped back, and he seemed perplexed. Something wrong? No, everything's just fine. She wanted to pull him into the bedroom as she grabbed his arms and yanked him closer. The timeline meant nothing now. He kissed her again, and they dropped to the sofa. Only Ben coming home soon stopped her. Greg, Ben will be back from Muldoon's. He pushed his lips together, nodding, and she could sense his difficulty in backing off. Greg straightened his turtleneck. His face remained flushed. She kept thinking about him crashing into the boards. Listen, listen to what I'm going to say, and you won't be playing basketball all your life. And I know that's hard to see right now, but I need to tell you something. You need something to fall back on. Well, I can't think that far ahead. What if you couldn't play ball? <laughs> Not play ball? He asked, laughing. I'll always be able to play ball. Listen, Caroline, let's get together later this week. I want you to meet my parents. He took her hand as he headed for the door. That should be interesting. He opened the door, and then they stepped into the hallway, and he again put his arms around her. Caroline looked up at his young face. Those eyes forever shut after Chicago were now open. Again she kissed him. 
Then she reached up and held his face in her hands, and he brushed his lips against her fingers. He gently kissed her forehead. Sweet dreams, Lina. He started down the stairs, but turned, caught sight of her, and ran back up. She laughed as he quickly kissed her and then headed down. I'll call you tomorrow. He closed the door as he passed. Caroline shut the apartment door, locking it securely, and pressed her body against it. She wished she hadn't sent him away from the apartment. She sprang from the door and darted across the rug to the window. Greg looped the supersport around. A reassuring smile covered her face as the car disappeared down Canterbury Street. She pulled the curtains back and looked outside one more time. When she had arrived back in 1968, she never had envisioned a relationship with Greg. A relationship might selfishly threaten basketball or his studies, but she could not stop warning him. The ringing phone jarred her from her thoughts. She glided to the other room and picked up the receiver. Miss Thatcher? A loudspeaker and commotion abounded in the background. Yes. Miss Thatcher, your uncle was brought to the emergency room about 20 minutes ago. What happened? He was attacked. Caroline fell back to the sofa and covered her eyes. Is he all right? He is awake and has been treated. He told you not to get all riled up. Can I talk to him? No, Mr. Thatcher is in x-ray right now. Who, who did it? Well, the police are handling that. I'm on my way over. She placed a call to the cab company and specifically asked for Hutch. Five minutes later, the cab pulled outside the front door. When she saw Hutch exit the cab, she ran outside. Miss Thatcher, can you get me to the local hospital's emergency room? What, in Reedsville? He asked as he opened the front door. Please. He shut the door and quickly got inside. What happened? My uncle was attacked. Hutch looked over his shoulder and pulled onto Canterbury Street. Why do I think it's that punk? I can't confirm anything yet. I'll take care of that little rat. He signaled onto Main Street and moved away at high speed past Binghamton's. Not only is he a punk, but he's stupid. You don't understand, Hutch. Nothing scares Marco, nothing. We'll see about that. The front display windows at Binghamton's whipped by and Hutch again signaled right. Hutch, Ben's got guys from Philadelphia. They beat up Mark, but he still threatened me after that. You should have called me. To her left, the streetlights brightened. The multi-winged hospital wrapped around the end of a side street. She wondered if Greg had been brought here after the accident. Hutch drove around the semi-circular drive and parked under the huge emergency room sign. Thanks, Hutch. She handed him three dollars. I can take care of St. Germain. I know. I'll let you know. Thank you so much. She popped the door and hurried up the concrete walkway. The nurse in green scrubs wheeled Ben back into the emergency unit. Caroline rushed forward. A circular band-aid covered his cheekbone and boarded his swollen left eye. Oh, Ben, don't get yourself all revved up. The nurse wheeled him to the side. You can go, Mr. Thatcher, once we get the x-ray reading. Well, where do I pay? At the station up front when you first came in. Thank you for your help. She looked into his earthy eyes. Yes, it was the punk. He doesn't care. Nothing scares him. It's my own fault. I should have ridden home with you and Greg. I'm afraid he's going to do something to us before the accident. How do we know that old woman didn't set us up just to be killed by him? We don't know that. Ben looked over his shoulder. 
Caroline turned as Mickey Muldoon barreled through the sliding doors. Hey, Ben, are you all right? I went down in the second round. It was St. Germain, wasn't it? He and three other derelicts. Mickey checked his swollen eye closely. Cripes, this is enough. I'm calling Sergeant Connor in Harrisburg. Mickey, what can they really do? asked Caroline. Well, they can lock him up for a while, even though he's a juvenile. He's a juvenile delinquent, Mickey. I won't have my uncle attacked by that subhuman. Hutch just told me he'd take him down. Hey, you listen to me, said Mickey. I'm telling you guys that Connor can handle it. Once St. Germain understands he's going away, he'll stop his bullshit. She nodded and took a paper cup out of the dispenser. Mickey kept ranting and she left for the payphone as she filled the cool water into the cup. She lifted the cup to Ben's lips and he slowly took in the liquid. Ben, time is passing by. In two weeks it'll be Thanksgiving. And December 20th isn't far beyond that. I don't understand why he just keeps coming at us. This is all very simple. Mickey's guy will put him away. Well, I'll pay the bill here. She checked with the clerk at the counter as Mickey started back. She paid the initial bill. The x-ray bill would come later. She waited for a receipt. And Mickey put his arm around Ben, and Ben nodded his head. Mickey waved at Caroline and then headed back through the sliding glass door. The clerk handed the receipt to Caroline, and she walked briskly back to Ben. The x-ray bill is coming in the mail, Ben. How are you doing? Oh, my ribs are aching. Damn him. What did Mickey say? He said the state police will pick up St. Germain and hopefully scare the hell out of him. And then they're getting me a firearm. She spun around. Ben, a gun? Did you just ask Mickey to get you a gun? Well, I need a gun. Isn't that obvious? No, no. This whole thing is a bad idea. It's getting out of hand. Then what do we do? Fight back with clubs and knives? I tell you something. This kid is playing for keeps. Trust me. I can feel it now. And I want to protect myself. And I want to protect you too. But the gun is not a good idea. Violence leads to violence. Sometimes violence is what it takes to stop violence. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 19 Ben walked along the dimly lit school building toward the quadrangle. Cars exited onto the school street hill to his left and the sound of his shoes hitting the concrete echoed off the yellow brick walls. A music room and a chemistry lab were barely visible inside the long pane windows. Movement in the glass reflection and rustling in the bushes signaled trouble. Marco St. Germain emerged from the shadows, ahead of three other guys. He gripped a green beer bottle and a cigarette hung from the corner of his mouth. Hey, old man, you trying to get in our way? He threw the cigarette into the fallen leaves. Then he pushed Ben several times with the blunt end of his hands. Ben started forward. Let me by, punk. Marco blocked the sidewalk and the others formed a semicircle around Ben. Oh, he thinks we're punks, Donnie. He thinks we're punks. You're already in deep shit, St. Germain. Oh, naughty language, old man. Naughty, naughty, naughty. You shouldn't talk to these impressionable young men like that. His friends laughed. Let me by, St. Germain. Well, I have a first name, he said, nodding to his friends. You can call me Marco. They grabbed Ben under the arms and tightened their lock as he fought to get loose. 
Marco, once they were successful, restrained Ben. He advanced with a smirk and his fists were clenched. He slapped Ben's face several times and muttered something Ben could not hear. Oh, you're a tough guy with your friends having to hold me back. Marco cocked his fist and hit Ben across his cheekbone. Then he pummeled Ben's stomach and ribs. At first, each blow shook him, but then his body built up an odd numbness, pain, and fatigue. Where's the lovely lady, Ben? Then he landed a punch across Ben's eye. You're a punk. Not only could he taste blood, but his right eye swelled shut and he had trouble standing. You and her just living together? What, do you like the young stuff, do you, Benji? Is she any good? Shut up. This is for sending your goons after me. Marco hit him in the stomach. Your troubles are just beginning, old man. Why don't you go to hell? Marco kicked him in the groin and Ben buckled over. The pain stung and he lay limp on their arms. With a quick blow behind his neck, they dropped him to the cement. He could not move now as they poured beer over his head. Marco's voice preceded a strong kick to the ribcage. Stay out of my way, old man. They crossed the walkway and crushed the fallen quadrangle leaves. A car's powerful engine started and the tires screeched away as Ben went out. Caroline cruised with Greg and the Supersport under the bare tree branches and along the houses scattered downtown. The radio music provided a continual presence as the leaves drifted through the night and onto the windshield. Occasionally, she glanced at the vinyl record and held his hand. Greg had a goofy smile as he drove. He downshifted and slowed near the corner variety store and then stopped at her apartment building. Are you ever going back to Michigan? She raised her brow. Well, I kind of like it here in Reedsville. Well, that's great. He leaned over and she felt his strength as he hugged her. I like you. Well, I like you too, Greg. She gave him a fleeting kiss. I guess you do. I want you to come up to the apartment. You do? Greg, as nervous as a 17-year-old could be with an older woman, maneuvered the car next to the curb. Once outside, he helped her from the car and continued to hold her hand. Caroline opened the outside door and they raced up the front stairway. Upstairs, she unlocked the door and he followed her inside. Ben's cooked bacon smell from this morning hung in the air. As she twisted the heat dial, she spotted the red and black yearbook still months away from print, open on the coffee table. When Greg neared the table, she grabbed him and pretended to dance. He laughed and then they waltzed around the room. If I had a CD, a what? If I had a record player, a turntable, I'd put that record on. They danced nearing the yearbook several times. Well, you can use my turntable. Well, great. She backed across the rug and saw the book in the corner of her eye. As if she were executing an elaborate karate maneuver, she swung around and kicked the book under the sofa. Then she lost her balance and he caught her. What a move, Lina. You should come to one of my dances. Dance? Greg, the kids at the school would have a field day with that. I don't care what they say. I don't. If you really want me to go, her long relationship with Greg had flowered into a new dimension when she threw her arms around his shoulders and kissed him fully. He passionately pulled her to his large frame and cupped his hands over her cheeks. When they broke the kiss, he smiled. Wait until my parents meet the math tutor. She grinned. Well, they can't complain about your grade. Tom likes good grades. Caroline remembered Tom in his later years, how he got sick and shuffled and bent over on the walker. 
Greg's mother would visit Tom in the nursing home. She too would grow old to come and die. But in 1968, they were both alive and well. Penny, for your thoughts, said Greg. Oh, I'm sure your parents will accept our relationship. Greg pulled her closer. How about some more tutoring, Miss Thatcher? She kissed him again, but Greg, ready to carry it further, rubbed her shoulders. Getting physically involved might not be the best thing for the vulnerable 17-year-old Greg. She thought about the future and how she might disrupt the timeline. She stepped back, and he seemed perplexed. Something wrong? No, everything's just fine. She wanted to pull him into the bedroom as she grabbed his arms and yanked him closer. The timeline meant nothing now. He kissed her again, and they dropped to the sofa. Only Ben coming home soon stopped her. Greg, Ben will be back from Muldoon's. He pushed his lips together, nodding, and she could sense his difficulty in backing off. Greg straightened his turtleneck. His face remained flushed. She kept thinking about him crashing into the boards. Listen, listen to what I'm going to say, and you won't be playing basketball all your life. And I know that's hard to see right now, but I need to tell you something. You need something to fall back on. Well, I can't think that far ahead. What if you couldn't play ball? <laughs> Not play ball? He asked, laughing. I'll always be able to play ball. Listen, Caroline, let's get together later this week. I want you to meet my parents. He took her hand as he headed for the door. That should be interesting. He opened the door, and then they stepped into the hallway, and he again put his arms around her. Caroline looked up at his young face. Those eyes forever shut after Chicago were now open. Again she kissed him. Then she reached up and held his face in her hands, and he brushed his lips against her fingers. He gently kissed her forehead. Sweet dreams, Lina. He started down the stairs, but turned, caught sight of her, and ran back up. She laughed as he quickly kissed her and then headed down. I'll call you tomorrow. He closed the door as he passed. Caroline shut the apartment door, locking it securely, and pressed her body against it. She wished she hadn't sent him away from the apartment. She sprang from the door and darted across the rug to the window. Greg looped the supersport around. A reassuring smile covered her face as the car disappeared down Canterbury Street. She pulled the curtains back and looked outside one more time. When she had arrived back in 1968, she never had envisioned a relationship with Greg. A relationship might selfishly threaten basketball or his studies, but she could not stop warning him. The ringing phone jarred her from her thoughts. She glided to the other room and picked up the receiver. Miss Thatcher? A loudspeaker and commotion abounded in the background. Yes. Miss Thatcher, your uncle was brought to the emergency room about 20 minutes ago. What happened? He was attacked. Caroline fell back to the sofa and covered her eyes. Is he all right? He is awake and has been treated. He told you not to get all riled up. Can I talk to him? No, Mr. Thatcher is in x-ray right now. Who, who did it? Well, the police are handling that. I'm on my way over. She placed a call to the cab company and specifically asked for Hutch. Five minutes later, the cab pulled outside the front door. When she saw Hutch exit the cab, she ran outside. Miss Thatcher? Can you get me to the local hospital's emergency room? What, in Reedsville? He asked as he opened the front door. Please. He shut the door and quickly got inside. What happened? My uncle was attacked. Hutch looked over his shoulder and pulled onto Canterbury Street. 
Why do I think it's that punk? I can't confirm anything yet. I'll take care of that little rat. He signaled onto Main Street and moved away at high speed past Binghamton's. Not only is he a punk, but he's stupid. You don't understand, Hutch. Nothing scares Marco, nothing. We'll see about that. The front display windows at Binghamton's whipped by and Hutch again signaled right. Hutch, Ben's got guys from Philadelphia. They beat up Mark, but he still threatened me after that. You should have called me. To her left, the streetlights brightened. The multi-winged hospital wrapped around the end of a side street. She wondered if Greg had been brought here after the accident. Hutch drove around the semicircular drive and parked under the huge emergency room sign. Thanks, Hutch. She handed him three dollars. I can take care of St. Germain. I know. I'll let you know. Thank you so much. She popped the door and hurried up the concrete walkway. The nurse in green scrubs wheeled Ben back into the emergency unit. Caroline rushed forward. A circular band-aid covered his cheekbone and boarded his swollen left eye. Oh, Ben, don't get yourself all ribbed up. The nurse wheeled him to the side. You can go, Mr. Thatcher, once we get the x-ray reading. Well, where do I pay? At the station up front when you first came in. Thank you for your help. She looked into his earthy eyes. Yes, it was the punk. He doesn't care. Nothing scares him. It's my own fault. I should have ridden home with you and Greg. I'm afraid he's going to do something to us before the accident. How do we know that old woman didn't set us up just to be killed by him? We don't know that. Ben looked over his shoulder. Caroline turned as Mickey Muldoon barreled through the sliding doors. Hey, Ben, are you all right? I went down in the second round. It was St. Germain, wasn't it? He and three other derelicts. Mickey checked his swollen eye closely. Cripes, this is enough. I'm calling Sergeant Connor in Harrisburg. Mickey, what can they really do? asked Caroline. Well, they can lock him up for a while, even though he's a juvenile. He's a juvenile delinquent, Mickey. I won't have my uncle attacked by that subhuman. Hutch just told me he'd take him down. Hey, you listen to me, said Mickey. I'm telling you guys that Connor can handle it. Once St. Germain understands he's going away, he'll stop his bullshit. She nodded and took a paper cup out of the dispenser. Mickey kept ranting and she left for the payphone as she filled the cool water into the cup. She lifted the cup to Ben's lips and he slowly took in the liquid. Ben, time is passing by. In two weeks it'll be Thanksgiving. And December 20th isn't far beyond that. I don't understand why he just keeps coming at us. This is all very simple. Mickey's guy will put him away. Well, I'll pay the bill here. She checked with the clerk at the counter as Mickey started back. She paid the initial bill. The x-ray bill would come later. She waited for a receipt, and Mickey put his arm around Ben, and Ben nodded his head. Mickey waved at Caroline and then headed back through the sliding glass door. The clerk handed the receipt to Caroline, and she walked briskly back to Ben. The x-ray bill is coming in the mail, Ben. How are you doing? Oh, my ribs are aching. Damn him. What did Mickey say? He said the state police will pick up St. Germain and hopefully scare the hell out of him. And then they're getting me a firearm. She spun around. Ben, a gun? Did you just ask Mickey to get you a gun? Well, I need a gun. Isn't that obvious? No, no, this whole thing is a bad idea. It's getting out of hand. Then what do we do? Fight back with clubs and knives? 
I tell you something, this kid is playing for keeps. Trust me, I can feel it now. And I want to protect myself, and I want to protect you too. But the gun is not a good idea. Violence leads to violence. Sometimes violence is what it takes to stop violence. The park in this book is a real place, and particularly important in my early life. The standard shift red Supersport was a wonderful car that I had fun driving for several years. A friend and I zoomed across country in that car. However, just like the girl that was left behind in the old folk song, the Supersport was sold much too early. But I digress. Caroline's problems only mount next week in episode 4 of The River of Fate. I'm Robert P. Fitton, sitting in the black bucket seat with my hand on the Muncie shift, and I'm about to peel out of here. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.